Coming never from Point of Insanity Game Studio, the most original movie to hit the big screen. In a world where anything can happen and all things are possible, witness as a ragtag group of unlikely heroes must band together to stop a threat to world peace. Featuring a cop who doesn't play by the rules, and his partner who always goes by the book. The scientist who saw it coming, warned the press, but was ignored anyway. The rebel tough guy. A dumb jock and his cheerleader girlfriend. The strong female character who don't need no man to protect her. An elderly kung fu master, the valley girl, and a stoner. Thrill to their adventures as they struggle against an evil genius and his incompetent sidekick, the corrupt politician, a greedy businessman. The elderly kung fu master's renegade student, an evil billionaire. The police chief who is on the payroll for the mob, a maniacal supercomputer. The likable character who was working for the bad guys the whole time, and an army of minions who couldn't shoot something if it was three feet in front of their face. There will be a chase scene, a Mexican standoff, a training montage, a love triangle, a hero left in a death trap while the villain walks away, a deuce ex machina, MacGuffins, red herrings, alien space bats, Chekhov's gun, and more. Words will be spoken, stuff will happen. Things will explode. Don't miss it. Welcome to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General podcast episode number 100. Yes, we finally reached the triple digits. So, I am of course, Al, broadcasting live from an undisclosed location in Northeast Wisconsin. And joining me are two friends of mine. First, broadcasting from his top-secret mad scientist base in the city of Relay underneath the sea, Chad. How are you doing today, Chad? I'm doing great, man. Um, don't give away too many details of where I am. Okay, and from her secret mad scientist lair in the heart of an active volcano... Dawn, how are you doing today, Dawn? I'm okay. <laughs> so I feel like you needed fanfare at the beginning of your uh, at the beginning of the episode talk, though. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, that, that's what the that's what the fake trailer I did at the start was for. Oh. Just kind of because you know it's usually when in any sort of long running media like comic books or TV shows, there's certain milestones where they usually do something special on and. Usually episode 100, there's usually a big, 
you know, a lot of uh, energy or a lot of advanced preparation that goes into that. And now, of course, Dawn, with you being a, a big comic book fan, is would you say that's fairly common in comic books for them to, you know, like retcon, episode- retcon, retcon? Yes. <laughs> but- <laughs> Because, I mean, isn't it usually, like, for, like, episode, like, not episode, issue, like, 100, they'll, sometimes a comic series might do, like, an extra long issue or a crossover? They don't get that far anymore. They get to, like, issue 8, and then they start over at issue number 1 again. Oh, like, It's, like, it's terrible. I think DC got to, like, issue maybe 20, and now they're doing Rebirth again, and Marvel did Jeez. the reboot to issue 1. That's just ridiculous. They don't get that high anymore. Yeah, and... <laughs> I, and- Chad, I mean, I don't know if you noticed this. I don't know if I don't know if either of you really watch much uh, TV. I mean, I don't watch as much as I used to. But Chad, TV, that magic, that magic box with the pictures. Yes, <laughs> the magic talking box with the moving pictures. Um, I I don't watch a lot of TV per se. I watch a lot more of like Netflix and that kind of stuff. The more of the movies and. If there is a series I want to watch, I want to watch it on Hulu or Netflix because then I don't have to deal with commercials. Yep. So would you say that doing something special for like a 100th issue or 100 episode is almost kind of cliche in a way? It it really is. So what better time to talk about cliches and tropes than episode 100 of the podcast? So a couple of fun facts before we begin. First of all, if you were to listen to every episode that is available on the Podbean right now, that is before we're recording this, you would have wasted 67 hours, 16 minutes, and 37 seconds of your life. Uh, Obviously, that does not include this episode because since we're in the process of recording it, I have no idea how long it's going to go. Now, uh, let's uh, put both of you on the spot here, though. This this question is going to be a little easier for Chad. Chad, do you remember which was the first podcast episode you helped me with? I do. It was uh, Robot Overlords. Correct. And do you remember which, uh, which episode number that was? I'm going to... Oh, man. Was it like 82? Close. 85. And- ah. And Dawn, here's a test for your memory. Do you remember the first episode that you helped me with? Was it? It was it. A, it was either a cosplay or a convention based one. I think wasn't it? Uh, I was actually Maybe? a little further back than that. Uh, remember, we did the two parter on alternate universes. Oh, we did. Okay. Well, I've helped you with a lot of them because yeah. we did the one where we talked about Deadpool and we then and, and all that and like Cowboys we talked about dinosaurs. so much. Just, that was recent. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we talked about so many things, and yeah, then we. The- have to, who would yeah. win in a fight, and then yeah, the, yeah alternate universes part uh, part one. And do you remember which episode number that was? No, <laughs> <laughs> number nine. Oh, so goodness, that was with the beginning. Yeah, it was pretty early, and you know, having done a lot of episodes now, it's kind of interesting. It's like there's times where it's like I clear there's certain episodes I very clearly remember recording, and it's like. Oh, that was probably like episode 70 something. And then like, I look back and it's like, that was like episode number 13. What the heck? <laughs> so now we're, we're going to put Al on the spot. Uh Oh, oh, being put on What's, the spot on my what, own show. <laughs> what was your worst podcast episode? So, okay. Which is my least favorite episode? Uh, that is really kind of hard to 
answer because, like I said, I, I've I've enjoyed uh, recording a lot of my episodes. I mean, I would have to say, hmm, I would have to say if I really had to choose a, a least favorite episode, it probably would have been. Maybe like some probably one of my earlier ones, like my episode zero or episode one. And I think it's because at that time I was still very inexperienced with podcasting and I, you know, was using different settings and still experimenting. And I don't know, I'm pretty harsh critic of myself. So a lot of times I, I don't know, I, I guess those earlier episodes, I'm not really happy with the sound quality on some of them. Well, I'm glad that's your opinion, but you're wrong. Oh, really? Uh-oh. It was episode 93. Episode? 93? Oh, the uh, Bride's... Bride's... <laughs> oh. Yes. Well, I don't know. I enjoyed recording the episode. It's just, yeah, I hated... Yeah, that's true. The subject matter we were talking about. Um, I mean, yeah, Revenge of the Bridesmaids. Uh, and probably not exactly the best movie I've seen. Um, the... And like I, I don't know if you if you've listened to that episode, Dawn, but it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's like I enjoyed the room more than I enjoyed uh, uh, <laughs> than Revenge of the Bridesmaids because at least <laughs> it sounded so bad. I listened to it. I'm going, I, this I don't even want to watch this for for like like laughs. It just sounds awful. Yeah, so and, you're cute now, right, Dawn? Yeah. <laughs> so. And I have to say another episode I really wasn't too happy with was probably episode 86 because I'm looking at my episode list. It was one of my bargain bin adventure games for a game called Dark Void. Just because when I was trying to do commentary on it, it really wasn't giving me much to work with. So, and the game really wasn't making much of an impression in the first place. But... Oh, hey. So, okay. Along the same lines then, other than the game... I mean, not the game, the the episode that disappeared and we have to redo. Oh, yes, that um, one. Yeah, uh, other than that one, what is something you'd like to go back to and redo it sometime? Hmm, that is like, actually... No, re, like, readdress the material and, like, you know, look for updates, basically. Okay, yeah. Oh, like doing a reboot or a remake, which is pretty much yeah. something that we see in Hollywood and comic books all the time. <laughs> That's... <laughs> That's a good question. I would have to say that probably one episode that I think I would I would like to kind of redo someday is uh, Dan from the Radio Free Border Pod- Radio Free Borderlands podcast and I we did an episode called Why Are Some Fans Snobs and I mean we weren't trying to come off as being like angry or addition warrior stuff but i think if i could i would probably maybe redo that one but try to take it in a little bit more calmer mature fashion um as opposed to that particular you know the particular style we did for that one and that was way back in episode 40 so on to today's topic cliches and tropes these are things that we see a lot in media of and i mentioned some of them in the you know the fake movie trailer that I made to start off this episode like you know one of my personal favorite ones you know the cop who doesn't play by the rules and you know elderly kung fu masters and usually it's not uncommon sometimes for an elderly kung fu master to have a renegade student and things like dumb jocks and I remember a lot of the 80s movies some of those 80s teen movies 
Am I the only one that kind of noticed that they sometimes overused a lot of Valley Girl characters? Oh, and it was really popular in the 80s, though. Yeah, in general. Yeah, because you really don't see the. I mean, I think the Valley Girl stereotype has kind of died down a bit, or it's not really as prevalent as it once was. Yeah. Are you familiar, Al, with the movie called Valley Girl? From. It it was Nicolas Cage's first uh, feature movie. And, uh, well, obviously overused the Valley Girl thing, but it was, a, it was a whole movie full of girls talking like that. It was... Oh, yeah, and it's... I, I've, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. So, Dawn, do you think you could do a good Valley Girl? Because uh, some of our my younger listeners might not, uh, might not be familiar with the term Valley Girl or what a Valley Girl might sound like. Yeah, no, because I got, well, I don't know, maybe I could if I really tried. I'd have to, like, think of, like, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie and uh, anything that took place, any movie that took place in basically Southern California or California at all in the 80s and early 90s pretty much had the Valley Girl thing because that's the whole valley. It was in the valley is where they took, where that came from, that whole, oh, my God. Um, like for it, sure. Oh, that's so grody. Like gag me with a spoon. That and think, but that's really and it all started along. Also, not just the the movie, but the whole mall scene mentality of the eighties. You know, mall concerts, girls hung out in the mall. That crap that came out of the eighties and California. That you know, see that whole scene. So yeah, and yeah. it's because. There's yeah, there's not really as much of the mall culture, I think. But I mean, of course, shopping malls are still out there. But yeah, because the Valley Girls were usually pictured as these rich, snobby girls that would appear in the films, and you know, sometimes if there was like a like a protagonist who was from a lower social class or one who was considered like a you know a nerd or you know socially unpopular, usually the Valley Girl was you know, there to at least make fun of them, if not, even if they weren't directly antagonizing that particular character. But we got a little bit of a header ahead of ourselves, but why, what is this fascination with tropes and cliches? Why does Hollywood use them? Do you think that they're just afraid to try something different or do they think that people can't accept original characters or is it possible they do this just for storytelling purposes? So uh, who wants to tackle that question first? I suppose I can. I, I have a theory on this. It's it's not very in-depth. It's not very uh, brain buster, but it works and it sells tickets. Okay. So I think that's definitely a very uh, fair theory that they think that, okay, we want to see movies with you know, cops who don't play by the rules and dumb jocks and, you know, the uh, love triangles and Mexican standoffs and other cliches that we see. Uh, What about you, Dawn? Do you think that, again, just because they know that this is going to sell or do you think it's more like just lazy storytelling? I think it's our new our new cultural mythology, honestly, because if you sit and you look, go back into and I use the term primary sources all the time, just based on my research. And it with your background in religious studies, you'll see this, too. But if you were to go back and look at Sumerian mythology or 
Greek or Greco-Roman mythology and Egyptian mythology, what are the themes you see in all of the storytelling through antiquity? You have a certain type of, you know, brutish hero myth. You have the certain damsel in distress kind of myths. And they also have these type of mythological tropes that go through and repeat themselves through cultures and repeat in that culture throughout that. Like in Greece, they repeat with different characters regionally. It's just basically this is what our mythology is right now as far as the storytelling goes. This is what that is basically yeah and I, I definitely agree with both of you and i'm you know i'm glad you brought that up with the whole modern mythologies because not to just a couple episodes ago episode 97 i did the topic on the hero's journey and when i was doing some research on that you know for that particular episode i don't remember the article or where i saw it it was on a website but that was one of the criticisms people that the author of this article had when dealing with like screenwriters and their fascination with the the hero's journey it's led them into making quote-unquote safe films ones that as chad said that you know are going to fill seats you know these types of movies are going to sell tickets and kind of as dawn said it's like this whole modern mythology that we have and I mean, honestly, I think to some extent it is also because of just lazy script writing, you know, rather than try to come up with a new or fresh original idea, let's just use these tried and true methods because, you know, as we've said, they know that it will sell. And I think it's that also that the, you know, like Hollywood and um, some authors and such, I think they're legitimately afraid to try something new because i i mean you look at just all the competition out there whether it's with comic books movies tv shows that they're afraid that if they do take risks they do something that is legitimately different or vastly different from what we're used to that no one's gonna care oh what are your thoughts on that yeah, I think it is almost along the lines of they don't want to tax the audience's brain. You know, whenever you see a really intelligent or a really smart movie out there, it's very much um, not a blockbuster. It's not a it's not a big film. You know what I mean? And I and I think that has to do with the way that the industry looks at the people they're selling to, because they're not selling. A movie to the highly intelligent they're selling it to the to the masses and i can certainly understand and agree with what you're saying there because and again not trying to say i mean i i don't think we're trying to say here that you know moviegoers are dumb i mean obviously the three of us watch movies so um you know that would be like saying we're dumb no but i i think you're right where they they want to try to make these you know, they're spending all this money to make these movies. So of course they want to try to get something that everyone could possibly get into as opposed to aiming for those little niche markets. What are your thoughts, Dawn? Um, I think the, well, things are changing, honestly. I mean, but the problem is it's not going to be in the bulk major cinema area and it's in the indie films. Um, which are going to Netflix. They're going to Hulu. They're going to other the Amazon video. 
they're going to smaller markets where people have to go and look for them. But that is where the uh, more adventurous type of filmmaking and even um, small series are making. I mean, stars picked up American Gods as a TV show, which never would have happened 10 years ago. Never. I mean, it honestly wouldn't have. But this is where it's going. I mean, the protagonist, Shadow Moon, is going to be play, is played by a black man, which 10 years ago would never have happened. Never. This is just things that are changing now. But as far as the major motion pictures go, like with the Marvel and all that, yeah, it, it's still going to it's going to be trope worthy. It's going to be full of all of what what the major dumbed down audience wants to see, because that is what brings in the money. And that's how the movies get funded. And like Marcus Cinemas and AMC and all the big movie houses that buy the, the buy the, the digitals to show in their theaters the rights to show them. They want to make sure that money's going to come in to fill their seats to so they can sell their concessions, which is where they make all their money. If they're not going to sell the concessions, they don't want that film in their theaters, which is the whole reason that's never going to change. Yeah. Unfortunately. And, and again, I think you brought up a good point there, how like, you, you know, these, these niche films, they do tend to make their way to like Netflix or Hulu, or in some cases direct to video or uh, direct to lost my train of thought for a sec there. They tend to go like to the direct to video. Now, like, for example, uh, Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs, I don't think I could really see that as being a movie that would get a widescreen release. I mean, that's something that I think you would probably be more likely to see on the, you know, on the sci fi network. And actually, what's kind of funny, and I, I know I told this, I, Dawn, I know I told you this. I don't think I told uh, this to you, Chad, but. One of our local network channels uh, is Comet. It shows a lot mm -hmm. of old, like, sci-fi movies. My wife called me in because she was watching it, and guess what? Cowboys and Dinosaurs was on. Was, on, was it uh, really? Yeah, they had it on Comet, which is just like, like I said, it's an it's it's just a local, yeah. a local network channel that you can get without having to get cable. So, I, I think that's another place where we can see these these smaller niche films start to appear well you know uh, another thing i was just thinking of al is with this being at the markets that we all are in you know i went to kansas city i don't know a couple months ago and i just happened to go to a theater there which did a lot of independent films and you know and i was talking to one of the guys that i work with down there and he goes oh we got like three of those in the city here you know where they're just they do independent movies and and I think it's a market size because where I am, if they put an independent theater here, it would go bankrupt in under a year. I guarantee it. But, you know, those independent movies are tending to be what we're talking about, the less tropey, the less cliche type movies. The more original movies. Right, right. You know, and that's a very good point that, you know, and I'm, I, I'm not by no means am I an expert on markets. I don't consider myself uh, an you know, knowledgeable on that topic, but I definitely agree with what you're saying that, yeah, the areas can make a difference. Um, now I'm not sure why Kansas city, something like that, it would be, it would thrive, but I mean, why it's do you think huge it, Kansas yeah. city spans two States? It's okay. Huge. Yeah, then, Kansas City is huge, and that's what I was talking about, market size. Yeah. And Kansas city goes from Kansas into Missouri. It's, it's massive. 
Yeah, and and I suppose from where you where you are, Chad, since you do live in a smaller, well, not really a, a small town, but you know, by no means is it large. Um, right. You know that it, you know, yeah, it something like that wouldn't survive because it probably just wouldn't really find its audience. It wouldn't have enough uh, people coming in to keep that type of establishment in business. Right. Right. Well, even think about here, Al. I mean, between the two of us, I mean, you live like 30 miles from me or, or so. And I'm in a pretty large area. I mean, and not small, but not exactly big. But there's nothing on the north side of this state at all for independent films. If you don't live in Milwaukee or maybe Madison, there is nothing for independent film. It's a good three-hour drive or more if you want to see an independent film in a theater. It, there's nothing. I mean, I can definitely see what you're saying there. And I, I mean, I could see uh, an independent movie theater doing a lot better down in like Milwaukee or Madison because there is such a large population. So you're more likely to find people who are willing to, you know, pay money to see those, you know, independent films. So let's move on to some of the different types of cliche characters. If you had to choose uh, one of your favorite cliche characters, what would you say is your favorite cliche character? We'll start with you, Dawn. Like a like a character type? Yes. Basically? Oh, see, character type is, um, I'm going to say that whole bad boy with the heart of gold that's re- that gets reformed by either like a girlfriend or reforms himself throughout the movie. That, you know, it, like, it was like in Crybaby. Like, think of that, like for a movie, for an example. Um, it's usually, you see it a lot in like the 50s style films, like the greaser. Yep. Like, uh, I like, think. Yeah. In Greece, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Greece, <laughs> yeah. There we go. So, but like Crybaby and all that where it's like the bad boy, but he's really good and sweet on the inside. And only, only the really pure girl can make it heart of gold come out. It's like. <laughs> yeah. The, I, I definitely, what you're talking about, you know, the rebel tough guy with a heart of gold who's a. You know, scary and tough on the outside, but actually soft and chewy on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's so terrible. I don't know why I love those movies, though, because it's so bad. You're like, uh-uh, no. Yeah. That's not how it works. <laughs> so, Chad, what is one of your favorite types of cliche characters? Oh, you know, the part of me that... That... uh Watches movies. I I tend to like the the strong, uh, like independent woman characters, <laughs> and I and I know that sounds, and I don't even know if that's a cliche or a trope, but you know they're always um, in the movies. They're just very much, you know, they're like I, I don't need a man and blah blah blah. And in the end, they find out that. They don't need a man, but they want a man kind of thing, you know? See, and I think that that I, I think that over probably the last twenty years or so, I think we have seen more strong female characters like that emerge. Um because yes. I'm like I said, I'm not a I'm not a film historian, but from some of the older movies I've seen from like the you know, fifties, sixties, you know, usually you are more likely to see that you know, the female characters as the damsel in distress type, whereas, you know, you do have, you know, more characters in uh, recent films that actually can take care of themselves and that they 
you know, they can handle themselves in a fight. And, you know, I mean, obviously we can expand this far beyond just movies. You know, we also have to consider things like TV shows and uh, comic books and even video games. And I'd have to say one of my favorite characters when you're talking about the, that strong female character. You know, actually, this is an interesting character that I think kind of encompasses both things that you were saying. You know, Dawn with your, you know, tough guy who's got the heart of gold but and the strong female character. Do either of you watch Once Upon a Time? No. Not at all. Okay. Well, there's too many characters on that show. I can't keep anybody straight. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I were big fans of that show, but one of my favorite characters in there is Regina. And she she's essentially the the evil queen from Snow White. And that's how she starts out. But as the series has developed, she's become a more sympathetic character. So she does kind of, you know, she does kind of have both those cliches going for her where she starts out as this, you know, this woman protruding a very tough, cold, mean exterior. But, you know, eventually you find out that, you know, she does have human feelings and she does start to change into a more likable character. But, I mean, I would have to say probably one of my favorite cliche characters. I always like the thing with, like, the elderly kung fu master and how sometimes they balance it out with the, you know, the renegade student. And I think one of... <laughs> this doesn't surprise me. I think I... Didn't I sit at your house and watch, like, two days worth of kung fu movies at some point? Like, Not years yet. ago? I don't think we've, uh, I don't think so, but that's something we should do sometime. You know, we should, we should all <laughs> I'm get... I'm pretty sure that happened like a decade ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've known each other long enough where that could have happened. But um, yeah, one of these days we'll have to have all, you know, all of us, I'll have to have uh, all my friends over and do like a cheesy Kung Fu movie night. But um, I mean, I think one of the reasons I think that that's, I enjoy that type of cliche so much is having studied martial arts and I have had a couple of instructors that I, you know, became you know, pretty close friends with. So I can definitely understand that relationship between the martial arts master and the student. And one of the reasons I think I, I can kind of, um, how can I say this? Why I understand that they've got the renegade student. I think it, first of all, it can add some good conflict to the, the series or to a, a movie. Um, a good example. There, there's actually a couple examples. Um, either of you ever played Final Fantasy VI? No. Okay, not really. And Dawn, Wait, six, I, six, I six was that that was that. Uh, did that, that one have a different on number? Super, yeah, that was three on the Super Nintendo. Okay, yeah, yeah, that like, I did. Because I was thinking about this the other day. Like they have the character Sabin, and there's this thing going between him. Uh, his master Var- Vargas, I think his name was, and then, yeah. or no, Vargas was the son. Duncan was the father, and was you know Duncan was the the instructor for both Sabin and Vargas. And when the party first meets uh, Vargas, you know he's about to kill the party, and then that's when Sabin comes in. He's like, you know, how could you kill your master, your father, like that? And you find out it's because. Um, you know, he's jealous of, of Sabin because he chose him to be the successor. 
But so Sabin and Vargas, they have their little dialogue, and then later you find out that Duncan actually was not dead. He did survive. But I, a more recent example, which I think both of you are probably familiar with, uh, Kill Bill, the Kill Bill movies. Oh, God, I love those movies so much. What about you, Chad? Did you ever get into the Kill Bill movies? I have never watched them. Oh, okay. We will have to, I'll have to kidnap you sometime and bring you down here and, uh, and make you watch well, them. Well, Netflix now, so all you have to do is say we're going to do it as a... As it came from Netflix. Netflix, then I'll have to watch them, right? <laughs> yep, but I, I think in that case, I mean, we've got in this one the uh, elderly kung fu master being the... Oh, what was his name? Taipei? No. Oh, the one that she went and got the sword made from? Not the sword. The one that she learned the five-finger death punch from. Sha- oh, I cannot remember that guy's name. But in a way, it's like... Oh. I was trying to figure out where, where you're talking in the movies. I'm like all confused now. I'm like, where are you? They, in the show, it in, they, they show it in the second movie where they've got the... Remember, uh, the bride has been buried alive. And yeah. And while she's, um, you know, she's panicking, she thinks back to the, uh, you know, to that, that training she had. And I think that's a good re- modern retelling of the elderly kung fu master and the renegade student because you had this again very harsh strict kung fu master and you know i guess you could say bill and oh god i can't remember her name um the nurse one that had the one eye yeah you know they served as the ellie i think her name was ellie right I think so. no. I thought Ellie was a little girl. I don't. We'll no, have to... Ellie. Oh, wait. Okay, this is driving me crazy. Well, now you're to... getting me confused now, Al. <laughs> Sorry, but again, I think that's a good example of the modern retelling of the Kung Fu Master and the Renegade Student because you had that Kung Fu Master, and he had Bill and that other woman. Again, I think her name was Ellie, but we're we'll move on from that right now. Where um, the you know, I wonder if the the master, if he didn't teach him that punch, if he didn't teach those characters that five finger death punch, because he felt that they weren't worthy of it. And then eventually, you know, even though he's very cold towards uh, the bride, um, he eventually warms up to her and sees that okay, she's worthy of learning this super powerful technique he has. And again, to kind of get back to my own personal experiences, I think that's something that martial arts instructors can relate to because I don't think there's any martial arts instructors that want to see a story at the, you know, on the six o'clock news that someone that they trained, you know, use their Kung Fu or their, their martial arts skills to go kill a lot of people. Well, you know, for me, when, it, when, when we're talking about Kung Fu, I go back to the late seventies, early eighties, you know, with the um, Robert Carradine, and I think it was just called Kung Fu, wasn't it? Yes, that was the series he was in, Kung Fu. Yeah. yeah it, and Carradine is the one that plays Bill in the Kill Bill movies, yep. by the way. So, oh, yeah. So that makes them worth watching, if for nothing else other than to see Carradine again. So Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, and, and you're right. I think that trope works out because I know zero about Kung Fu. Yeah, and... I mean, because usually you don't see as many, well, I guess you could say Mr. Miyagi, he's kind of that elderly karate master, though 
I Karate Kid, they really didn't specify what martial art he did, did they? Or... Well, they didn't, but it was called the Karate Kid. So we assume it was probably karate, some form of that, karate. That, that, that's what I assumed it was all these years, but who knows? But, yeah, and <laughs> I, I think with like Kung Fu, you know, we've grown up with the stereotype of the Shaolin monk, where supposedly they can do all these crazy things. And um, you know, I, as I recall, some of the earlier Kung Fu movies they didn't focus on gritty realism like some of the Chuck Norris type movies used used to do. Um, it focused a lot more on these guys that would f- jump and they'd fly 20 feet in the air and all that. And then again, we also look in, in gaming. I mean, I don't know how familiar you, you two are with uh, first edition Dungeons and Dragons. Not uh, first, first edition, not so much. I, I was really a second ed guy. Yeah, and Dawn, I think you're – did you start with second edition or did you ever really do much first edition? I started with second. Okay, because like in first edition, the they had the monk class, which was more or less loosely based on Shaolin monks where they did have all these semi-mystical powers. And that was released in like the mid-70s. But – Let's talk about some of the other types of cliches we usually see. And, of course, we have to cover this one because everyone knows it. I think a lot of people love it. The cop who doesn't play by the rules. You know, so this is where... everything ever. Yeah, and why do you guys think that trope is so popular with, you know, this cop who, you know, he doesn't go in and read you your rights and handcuffs you. He... You know, he beats you up and then drags you to the outskirts of town and threatens to throw you off a bridge if you don't tell him what he wants. You know, so we see these very rough cops and stuff like Dirty Harry. And uh, what was it? I believe was it Charles Bronson? What was the character he played? Wasn't Bronson was... uh... Oh... I can't remember the Death Wish. That was the name of the movies he was, right? Yeah, I can't think of what he, what his name was, but um, yeah. And the other one, you know, when I think of that, the the first movie, probably because I watched it early on, was Lethal Weapon movies. Okay. Oh my god, those movies are so good. <laughs> they are. <laughs> they are, and you know, and I think people grasp onto that because you know everybody wants to be a little bit of a rebel. Everybody wants to be, you know, everybody wants to picture themselves as, oh, yeah, that's the way I would do it. But, you know, and, and it's that that's that disbelief, you know. The, uh, Suspension of disbelief. Thank you. That's what I was trying to come up with. You know, it's like, you know, it's like when I was 10 years younger than I am now, I used to watch Deadliest Catch, right? And I'm like, oh, I could do that. And now now I watch it and I go... Those people are crazy to do that. <laughs> yes. Ten years ago, I thought they were crazy. <laughs> so, Don, what do you think about the cop who doesn't play by the rules and why it's so popular? I think it, it appeals to that part of you that wants to do something a little bit outside the law and get away with it. Yeah. and You know, because I, the cop can kind of get away with it a little bit, especially if their partner isn't really going to do much to turn them in. And you see it in so many like TV shows more than anything. And it doesn't have to be like a regular cop drama, even though there's still cop dramas. Like, take uh, if if either of you watched Continuum when it was still on Sci-Fi. Uh, no, I have not. 
No. It was it was kind of like a time travel kind of thing. Like she got sucked into like the modern day from like 2077 or something. So she wasn't really a cop in our time, but she's basically from So she was the one that didn't really obey the rules, but nobody really knew that she was from the future. So it's kind of like this weird like dichotomy that she had to kind of go through to kind of not reveal who she really was. But it was like that whole like delightful part of I would so love to be able to just kind of beat the crap out of people. Yeah, and to some extent, I think it does speak to a certain frustration that people have because occasionally there are these you know high profile murder cases where you have a feeling that the person they are guilty, but they get off because of some technicality or uh, some other reason. So that's. I think that could be one reason why the cop that doesn't play by the rules is so popular is because we we like the idea that sometimes the justice system fails and doesn't do what it should be doing. So sometimes you got to have these characters who go out and take the law into their own hands, so to speak. Right, because which... the criminals get cocky and bend the system to their will because they know how to play the loopholes. And that's where I say I think there's a perverse part of us that really like that because like that the, the cops can go around the system and because we know that they don't really do that. Well, we say we don't know, but <laughs> but we like that because we know that in reality there are people playing the system to get away with a lot of things because there are loopholes. There really are. Yeah. And now, one of the things that we see sometimes, sometimes it's always fun when they take the cop who doesn't play by the rules and pairs him with the partner that always goes by the book. One yep. series that I can remember that did this, did you, do you remember the old show Sledgehammer? No, I don't actually. Oh, you don't? Chad? I'm pretty sure my mother watched that show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, was that a jab at me? <laughs> no, not at all. I'm just saying. I think I I don't remember like watching it myself, but I I do think I think I remember my mother watched that one. Yeah, because Sledgehammer, uh, for those who maybe aren't old enough to remember it or watched it, it was about a cop named Sledgehammer who was he was the the bad cop. He was the one who would if there was like a bank robbery, and I think they did this in one episode. He fired a rocket launcher into the building because it was being robbed. Um, so, like I said, he was that cop that would use the over-the-top over violence. And his partner, as I remember, was the one who always, you know, went by the book. So, I, I think that that's an example where that cliche can work well. I think it works better in comedy-type movies um, because I couldn't see something like CSI where they take, you know, a cop that goes by the rules and a cop that won't follow the rules. I don't think that would work in a very realistic setting, but I think that can really, really be awesome in a comedy type setting. Well, it worked on life, but life they had to cancel because Sarah Shahi got pregnant and then the replacement for the ratings dropped so far that they ended up canceling the show. Um, that was, that was at Charlie Cruz show. I think it was on like, uh, I don't know, some one of the, one of the cable channels it was really good. And then uh, the first se- first the first half of the first season of Gotham, which is as far as I went, before, um, oh, what's his, uh, before Gordon lost his marbles and stopped when he was still like young and like when he was still like behaving, 
him and his partner, they were like, that was, that was, you know, now it's like all different, but. Yeah, because his partner was on the take and. Because, what's his name? The guy Daniel Logue plays. What's the character's name? He's not good. He's a, he's a jerk in the comics too, but the name is escaping me right now. Yeah, I couldn't tell you the name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that actually brings us to one of the other ty- types of stereotypes. With um, and Dawn, you mentioned the you know the cop who's on the take. So this yeah. is something we do see every now and then, where you know you've got the police chief or you've got some other uh, police officer, you know, usually a higher ranking one that's in cahoots with the bad guys. Uh, Sons of Anarchy. I know they did that as well, where they had the a couple of the cops who were, you know, they were friends with the gangs and the motorcycle gang and would kind of look the other way sometimes. Why do you think that particular cliche is so popular and so prevalent? Because it happens. <laughs> so you think it's... Oh, no, I'll be perfectly honest. People, people anywhere, and it doesn't necessarily be, you know, politicians, lawyers, businessmen. I think some of that is truth and some of that is fantasy, but... We see a lot of people in our everyday life, like, you know, lower management that clearly kisses up to upper management, gets whatever they want, and then does whatever they want. You know what I mean? Just kind of, you see it to different extents in your everyday life. So therefore, you can relate really easily to when these things translate into fiction. So what about you, Chad? No, I think, I think she nailed that one perfectly. I mean, it's, it's the, uh, it's the everyday ass kissers. It's what it is. And I, and I think you nailed that perfectly as far as, as far as why, why it plays. I think another reason it can be so popular is it speaks to the distrust that some people have towards law enforcement, where sometimes we're really not sure who they're protecting and serving. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And it's, and it's funny if you watch, if you just watch everyday people, you know, they're always like, well, the cop's out to get me. And it's like, why would the cop be out to get you? You know, I've never, I've never understood that. But even like my, my oldest daughter just started driving recently and, you know, she'll, she'll talk about a cop following her. And it's like, if you're not doing anything wrong, it's not a big deal. You know, they're there to actually there to help you not to, you know, they're not watching you just to get you because you're young or whatever, you know? Yep. Another type of cliche that we usually see, and and this one is very, very common in disaster movies. The scientist who they saw some great danger coming, whether it was a natural disaster or I I think there's a there was an asylum film that had a, a scientist that was kind of like that, where I think it was the one where it was like a an anaconda crossed with a piranha or something like that. That was the one Debbie Gibson and Tiffany were in. Yeah. Or wait, <laughs> was it that one or was it the shark that, the, no, I think it was the one with the shark and the octopus. I don't know. It's, it's hard to keep a shark. It was not shark to It was, it was the, the piranha, piranaconda because Tiffany and Debbie Gibson are fighting and rolling around in the mud and quoting each other's songs at each other in the mud fight. Wait, what movie is this? <laughs> Piranaconda or something like that. It's an yeah. asylum film. <laughs> yeah, it's like 
that's one thing with Asylum. It's like, I know they have Sharktopus, uh, you know, Piranaconda, and I think they, didn't they have like some three-headed shark one? But I, I, I think the one I was thinking about was the Sharktopus where um, there was a scientist who left this program because he didn't think it was right to cross the genes of a shark with an octopus. So, yeah, and, you know, so it's not uncommon, in the, especially in disaster movies where it's like there's a, a scientist who's like, you know, we have to evacuate these people because there's going to be a huge earthquake in the next three days. So we got to get everyone out of here. But um, for some reason, you know, of course, the greedy uh, hotel owner, resort owner doesn't want to do that. So, you know, the earthquake happens. People die, people get hurt, and then the, we have the movie where everyone's trying to, you know, escape this earthquake or volcano or whatever. Now, I probably answered my own question in a way, uh, because, I mean, let's say you did have a movie where, you know, there's this remote tropical paradise resort, and there's a scientist who predicts that there's a volcano that's about to erupt, and he tries to get everyone to evacuate. Now, would it be a very exciting movie if the resort owner's like, okay, uh, everyone on the boats, we're getting out of here, or do you think they, they, they like that cliche because it does create that tension and that conflict that you often need in a movie to drive the story? Well, you need the conflict, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, you're right. It would be a boring, boring movie if everybody got on the plane and left. Yeah, it would, would, be would, history, would history tell us about um, the the uh, the lost city of Vesuvius if the people had left? You know, yeah, that it, would be kind of boring. <laughs> yeah, it's like okay, uh, someone, some, I don't know, uh, ancient scientist. Okay, everyone, we got to leave Vesuvius because the volcano is about to erupt. So everyone's safely ashore. Meanwhile, we pan back to an empty city being destroyed. Yeah, that wouldn't be very exciting, would it? <laughs> So another stereotype that I notice, and again, we, I think we don't see this as much anymore, but usually there's like the dumb jock and the cheerleader girlfriend. Uh, one movie that I think really kind of played on that a lot was Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. Revenge of the Nerds. That, that was a great movie, especially growing up a nerd. <laughs> yes. But, you know, that's one of those movies. Well, before I make this point, let's go to you, Dawn. Why do you think that uh, stereotype of the dumb jock and the cheerleader girlfriend has become so, you know, popular and or why it was popular and, and why we still see it occasionally? Because it's a thing. <laughs> it really is. I'm sorry. I'm not even going to deny it. I went to a small high school full of jocks and, um, I, well, I was a cheerleader, but I was also the nerdy girl. So I got ignored mostly though. I did have a jock boyfriend my senior year, so I can't really talk about it, but yeah. <laughs> he, but, so he was a farmer and whatever, but it is, it's a, the cliche, it's a cliche because the stereotype that actually happens, the football players generally date the dance team's cheerleader girls because they're wearing short skirts, tight clothes, and they're flexible. So you think it's because like the, you know, that, that jock, you know, he wouldn't want to be seen with the, you know, the, the nerdy uh, girl, you know, dating her. Whereas do you think maybe like the, you know, the pretty attractive cheerleader wouldn't want to be seen dating or befriending, you know, the the glasses wearing nerd who plays D and D at lunchtime. Oh wait, that would it's be high me. school. Everybody is superficial. Yes. 
So you think that stereotype or that that trope really plays to this idea that you know when you are younger you do tend to see mostly things like social status and physical appearance as opposed to what someone's actually like inside. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> That's and, how high school works. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes I wonder if these filmmakers if they're almost you know how we make the jocks dumb how that stereotype is kind of like, okay, yeah, you are athletic and all that, but, you know, you, you're also failing, you know, math class. So it's that's, kind Well, of- and that's legit because most of our, well, in some cases, because in our high school, like our coaches, like our football coach was the geometry teacher and those guys didn't have to actually attend class. They just got passed because they're on the football team. So, <laughs> and there's have, do, have either of you watched the show the goldbergs sometimes chad have you never ever watched it of, never even heard of it al it's a sitcom and it's it's an 80s sitcom it takes well it's it was it's current but it was it takes place in the 80s and okay. there's this one episode that i know both of you would appreciate uh there one of the the main characters uh i forget the kid's name but he was complaining to the gym teacher how, you know, they always pick, you know, that they always let the jocks pick the teams. And then like, you know, it always ends up where you've got all the athletic kids on one team and then all the, the nerds and unathletic kids on the other. So they're always getting beaten. So this, the kid manages to talk the gym teacher into letting him choose a team. So instead of choosing his friends, of course, he chooses all the jocks. So this, of course, upsets his friends. But this is where it was really funny. They decide, the nerds decide that they're going to challenge the jocks to a game of Dungeons and Dragons. So nice. you had this episode where the nerdy kid was trying to teach these these football players and wrestlers how to play Dungeons and Dragons. So it was funny. I don't remember the name of the episode, but again, it was one of those episodes where anyone who's a role player, you probably could get into that particular episode. Yeah. And you know, another one like that, and actually it's a, it's a series that was really full of a lot of the cliches was community. Did either of you watch that? I've seen a few episodes of it and I know they've, I think they've had like one or two episodes where they did feature Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, they did. But I mean, just above and beyond that, they, you know, they had the, they had the jock, they had the Brainiac girl, you know, they had the dumb blonde. I mean, they had a lot of those cliches just as the main characters. And, you know, it it was almost a sitcom that made fun of sitcoms in a, in a lot of ways. It's It only lasted four seasons, unfortunately. Well, moving on, um, another stereotype that I know we, we see quite a bit is usually corrupt politicians, lawyers, and businessmen. What do you think is our fascination with these corrupt lawyers, businessmen, and politicians? How sometimes they're pictured as evil and, you know, they are like bribing the, you know, bribing government or law to get their way. Uh, I mean, I, I know it can certainly make good conflict. Um, of course, you probably remember the classic movie, The Goonies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, that's an example where the thing that's driving that story is you've got this developer who wants to buy up all the the houses so that he can make, I think it was like either a resort or luxury apartments there. And, you know, so the you have these kids who call themselves the Goonies who are 
going to try to find this treasure so they can buy back all the land and not have to, you know, basically throw out this this uh, businessman's plans. So let's start with Dawn on this one. Why do you think we see this stereotype of the, you know, greedy businessman and the, you know, the, the slime bag lawyer who gets guilty people off the hook and corrupt politicians? Why do you think that trope has endured so much? Because we don't trust these people in everyday life. I mean, think of a, like, generally speaking, lawyers are slimy people to us. We don't trust them. Look at how, to even trying to stay from politics, but look at how a lot of people on the far left-leaning spectrum don't trust really wealthy or successful people in the far as the business spectrum. They don't trust anyone on Wall Street, even if they're self-made. They don't trust wealthy people. We don't trust politicians in a general sense. We just don't trust anyone with any degree of success. Maybe that's because people all just, I don't know. It's some weird, sick thing that we have. I just... Generally speaking, we don't trust lawyers, we don't trust politicians, we don't trust businessmen, we don't trust them. So therefore, there must be some type of corruptness there. So we're going to put that in our fiction as well. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, it's like no one trusts a lawyer until you actually really need one. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So what about you, Chad? What are your thoughts on corrupt politicians, lawyers, and businessmen? I, I think she, I, again, I think Dawn hit it pretty pretty solid, but the only The reason I think we use that trope and cliche in the movies is because unlike real life, where a lot of times they get away with what they're doing, you know, they always get their comeuppance in in, um, in TV, you know, Um, whether it's a change of heart, whether it's, you know, they go to prison or whatever. And I think that's just our, it's just a, a person's way to have that fantasy of, you know, this is what could happen or should happen to those people that we don't trust for whatever reason. Um, you know, the, whether it's a lawyer, a politician, a businessman, what, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, well, and I, and, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just, I was kind of just running out of stuff to yeah. say. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with the whole, it's always going to be, uh, you know, people hating people who are wealthy and successful, but I think sometimes it does speak to that whole fear that some people have because you think about it, some of these people who do have lots of power and influence, sometimes they are going to make decisions that could potentially have disastrous consequences for your life. And again, I, I don't want to get political because that's something I do try to avoid on my show. But I mean, every now and then, hey, there are political scandals and the, you know, occasionally we do hear about uh, businessmen who, you know, were caught bribing officials or whatever so they could get their, you know, their, their project passed or their, a certain law passed. So I think to some extent that particular trope does speak to stereotypes. And to some extent, I think it speaks to uh, fears that can be based in reality. You know, it's not unusual to see, you know, these corrupt politicians or businessmen or whatever in positions of power. And usually someone in position of power is going to have an army of minions to do their work. And I'm not talking about the cute little yellow minions that we see in the Despicable Me movies. You know, I'm usually oh, talking... Rage. <laughs> Well, those minions are likable, though, and and they're, they're not like the minions I'm thinking of here. Um, no, I know, I know. 
The best example that I think anyone can think of off the top of their head with this one are the stormtroopers. Where have you ever heard of the stormtrooper effect? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, the stormtrooper effect. And essentially what that means is that you're going to have enemies that are they're pictured as being very skilled and efficient except when they're not supposed to be. A good example would be when in Star Wars episode 4 when when Obi-Wan and Luke are looking at these Jawas that were killed and they're like, you know, only stormtroopers are so precise. But then later on we see Luke, Leah, and Chewbacca and Han, they're basically able to, you know, outwit and outmaneuver a huge group of number of stormtroopers on the Death Star. So why do you think that we have this whole idea of these minions who can't shoot straight and how, you know, you've got a a small group of heroes who can take on a large group of faceless villains? Um, I think that goes back to an idea that um, that has been used in, in, in other forms of media, too. Why we do it exactly, I don't know, but it kind of pulls over into role-playing as well, where, you know, you have a group of six guys that go delve, a, delve into a dungeon, and they beat the pants off of, you know... Orcs and goblins whatever. and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and, and groups of kobolds and... It's like if you look at sheer numbers, this doesn't work, but yet it does. And I and, and I think it goes back even one step further to uh, tabletop wargaming. You know, when they started breaking it down into what would later become role-playing, and instead of having a battalion, you had a hero. You know what I mean? And it just it, it worked its way out, and... Uh, you know, Star Wars, the original, the, the episode four came out in what, 77 ish. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah. I don't know. I like, like I've said in past episodes, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, but you know, and Dungeons and Dragons started up in that same era and it all kind of cross pollinated, I think. But, um, you know, why we do it, why, why we have these faceless minions, um, you know, in the in the series, they were clones, were they not? The the only in the, the prequel trilogy. Um, only in the okay. Yeah, because so. by the time the, the the original trilogy rolled around, um, the and while this was expanded universe stuff, so who know? Well, I think Disney has decided to keep this canon. Eventually, what happened with like the clone troopers is they got old and they you know started to die and retire. So then, what the Empire started doing is they started to recruit or press gang, you know, forcefully recruit people from the different worlds that they conquered. And um, that's why, because I remember when it was revealed that uh, John Boyetta, I can never pronounce his last name, the guy who played Finn in episode seven. Okay. Because I remember when uh, it was first revealed that there was a black stormtrooper. You know, there were some people that were losing their minds about that. Because they're like, well, no, they're supposed to be clones. And, you know, Django Fett, he wasn't black. How can there be a black stormtrooper? Well, again, it all goes into this whole thing. And I know there were people like, oh, they're just trying to be politically correct. It's like, no, the if you go by the Star Wars canon or, and the stuff that was established in the expanded universe, the cloning program pretty much stopped sometime between Episode 3 and Episode 4. 
where you didn't have these clones and they would start to bring in people from different planets. Hence why it's, you know, why it wasn't a big deal to have a black stormtrooper or a Mm -hmm. stormtrooper of any, any sort of race, you know, in theory, yeah, you could have a stormtrooper whose skin is purple with yellow and orange polka dots. And it, it makes sense in the continuity of star Wars. And right. I'll get back to that in just a moment. But uh, Dawn, what is your theory on why we love having these armies of minions who can't shoot anything, even if it's two inches in front of their face? I have no idea. Entertainment value, really. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> yeah. And I forgot where I read this, but there is someone who was trying to argue that there is a psychological reason why an army of faceless minions will lose to a small group of protagonists. Because one of the things that you usually do, or that is very common, is you always try to dehumanize your enemy. Because humans are social. You know, it's it's very common for people to live in groups. You know, that's that's what I mean when I say humans are social. Yeah, I know there's people out there who are like, well, I like being alone. I'd rather be alone. But that's beside the point. Well, anyways... um. So if you see your opponent as a person who has feelings, who has emotions, who maybe has a family to go home to, that's going to make it harder for you to want to kill or hurt or maim that person. But if you see that enemy as just, you know, an enemy to be defeated, you dehumanize him, then it makes it easier for you to pull the trigger. Now, again, let's look at uh, Star Wars. When the stormtroopers are, you know, they're firing upon Luke and Leah and Han and Chewbacca, they're seeing people. They're seeing individuals. So deep down, that might cause the stormtrooper to hesitate because he's seen another person. However, Luke, Han, Leah, and Chewbacca, they just see an army of faceless enemies who all look alike. So therefore, it's easier for them to say, okay, we're just going to blast all of them away and not think anything of it because you're not seeing them as as a person. You're seeing them as just a faceless enemy. And to bring it around to Chad, you were talking about Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, And I think we can kind of see the same thing when we talk about how we've got parties of adventurers that plow through hordes of orcs and goblins. Because they're not like us. They're monsters. They're enemies that only deserve to be defeated. Okay, should I step off the soapbox now? <laughs> no, I think I think you have a point there, or, or that whoever wrote that article has a point there. Well, now that I've stepped down from my soapbox, I think it's time for us to call this episode to an end. So before we uh, close the episode, I'd just like to say... Uh, Big, huge thank you to all of you who have been listening to the episodes. Uh, I really do appreciate that. Uh, You guys keep me going. And, of course, I'd like to thank all the people who've helped me with my episodes in the past. Uh, First Present Company, of course. Uh, Chad, Dawn, thank you very much for not just helping me tonight with this episode, but with the other episodes you've helped me with. And, of course, I'd like to thank... Uh, Dan and Dave from the Radio Free Borderlands podcast, and uh, my original co-host Steve, uh, my son Alan, and my wife Roz, who've helped me here and there. 
uh, as well as some of my other guests, uh, Casey, uh, James, and uh, Josh. So with that said, uh, Chad, if people maybe want to hear some, of, well, not hear, but if they want to read some of your writings, where can they find you? Well, they can find me at nuosu.blogspot.com. Um, it's my blog called Nut Up or Shut Up. Um, uh, as I've said before, it has nothing to do with gaming. It has to do with positive reaffirmation. Um, also, if you don't mind here, Al, I'm going to plug my convention. Um, Evercon, evercon.org. Come check us out. We are expanding this year. We're becoming a three-day con. We're going to a con true convention center instead of a school. So, uh, yeah, if you guys got a chance, uh, we I know gamers listen to this. You know, go check us out, evercon.org. Yep, and if you are in uh, Wausau, Wisconsin during the frigid month of July, stop by. It'll be, I'm sure it'll be fun. I've, I was at the Evercon once, and I do hope to get back there again. So, and, and it's, it's frigid. It's the frigid month of January. January. Not, Did I say not so hot? You July. said July. <laughs> oh yeah, that if you know if uh, the month of July in Wisconsin was frigid, we would be having problems. But anyways, and Dawn, where can people find you if they want to? see a little bit more or learn a little bit more about some of the cosplay you've done well um if you go facebook.com and then search amethyst dawn designs um it's all one word that'll come up uh because there's a couple other amethyst dawns on facebook but just amethyst dawn designs you'll find my my page that has all my cosplay my dance because i am also a belly dancer and i teach dance locally um all of that and and more uh will show up on that page but then you can also find me on twitter under amethyst dawn and also on uh instagram and all that stuff shows up on there as well so okay. And, of course, while you're on Facebook checking out Amethyst Dawn Designs, feel free to stop by Point of Insanity Game Studio. And, uh, of course, you can stop by Point of Insanity Game Studio on YouTube and stop by the main website, poigamestudio.com. So with that said, I'd like to thank all of you for listening to the 100th episode here and as well as any other episodes you've listened to. Uh, again, Thank you very much to all the listeners, whether you've just started listening to the podcast or whether you've been listening from the very beginning. So thanks for joining us and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.